0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series in Romans chapter 9 to 11 with a message called God's Right to Rule. So let's join Dr. Newfeld in Romans chapter 9 verses 19 to 24 in our continuing series, The Progress of the Gospel.
1: We're about to read a passage of scripture that contains a phrase, a phrase I'm going to draw out of this passage, which also expresses all of what we're going to discuss today. It's the phrase, has the potter no right? Now, as we're going to see, the potter is God. Well, the clay, that's us. And the right has to do with God's right to act freely. And so in essence, we're going to be talking about God's rights. Now, that might sound surprising. You know, for for some of us, we're accustomed in our culture to stress human rights. So we talk about human rights. We mean things like the the right to live free from oppression, the right to education and health care, the right to self-determination, the right to express my viewpoints or freedom of speech and so forth. And those are good things because, so it's argued, those rights are inherent in what it means to be human. Well, very good. To the most part, I'm glad for all of those things. But for the purpose of our conversation today, are there rights inherent in the person of God? Now, unlike human beings, God doesn't have to fight for his rights. His power makes all things available to him. But the question is not how much struggle there would be to gain rights. The question is rather, what are those rights that are inherent in being, not human, but in being God? Does the potter not have the right, asks Paul. But there's another aspect in the discussion that we have to talk about. It's the issue of the clay, and that, in this analogy, human beings are described as clay, the work of God's hands. Now, I remember one year when I was in elementary school, we had an opportunity to work in pottery. In fact, the whole class was instructed to make ashtrays. Now, I'm amazed when I think about that today. I, I wonder if it if was Export A or Marlboro that sponsored that class. Well, you can tell that I went to school in a very different era, but nonetheless— I set out to make my ashtray. The most important job was to mold it, and I did a horrible job. I'm sure that of the 30 kids that in my class made ashtrays, mine was the ugliest, most misshapen piece of pottery that I had ever seen. I looked around at the other kids, and I found to my dismay that no one had done so poor a work as mine. Other kids got theirs to be smooth and round with little dips on each side to hold a cigarette. And and mine was unnaturally oblong and rough. and, And you could see my fingerprints right in the pottery. And after it was glazed and fired in the oven, I thought it might look better, but no, it didn't. And from that moment, I realized that pottery was definitely not my call in life. Now, contrast that to every once in a while. I'll walk along the ocean side where I live and they will feature carvers and and some will take unformed rocks and with skilled hands transform something that's rough and unshaped into fabulous carved images. I sometimes look at the carver's hand and I ask myself, how is it that those hands have such mastery over the stones that they hold? And here's the question. Does a master carver or a master potter, have the right to deal with the clay as he sees fit. Now we're talking about God's right to rule the world, and in the process, as we're going to see, Paul compares God to a potter and human beings to the clay. And what he'll say is that the potter has absolute rights over the clay to make the clay exactly what he determines. All that sounds wonderful, but you'll remember that Paul in Romans 9 has been saying that God has the right to elect a people unto himself. In fact, we saw that before Jacob was born or had done anything good or bad, God elected Jacob and rejected his brother Esau, and that he did it on the basis of his purpose. The potter had a specific purpose in doing what he did, and that leaves many, myself included, with a series of searching questions. To what extent does God rule the world? According to Romans 9, he rules it completely, right down to the details. Does he control the destiny of every single human being, like a potter over the clay? Well, the answer is yes. But what of our free choices? And of course, the potter has created the clay in such a way that the clay is a free moral agent. But with all freedom, there are limitations. You know, I remember when I was about 16, I asked the prettiest girl in my school out on a date, and she told me to get lost. You know, I soon found out that I freely chose a lot of things that were going to be denied to me in life. See, all human freedom is limited. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's begin with today's scripture. I'm reading Romans 9, 19 to 21, but before I do, let's reread verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, that was shocking conclusion of the last passage. And then Paul adds verses 19 to 21. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I wonder if some of you, hearing this passage read just now, felt your back stiffen up just a bit. It seems that verse 19 asks a reasonable question, and then Paul responds by saying, don't you dare talk back to God. Some of you have a similar memory from your childhood when you thought your parents were doing something wrong, and instead of explaining themselves, they simply said, Johnny, you don't give me any lip. And that at least for them settled it, but at least the way you saw it, nothing was settled. But consider this, Paul has already answered the question being asked. Back in Romans 1, Paul made very clear how human freedom operated. In a world charged with the grandeur of God, human beings have universally ignored the imprint of God in nature. We've done it freely. And furthermore, seeing in nature God's gracious care for us, all together have failed to be grateful. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, The world is not lacking in wonders, but in a sense of wonder. See, I'm reminded of a video clip one of the pastors in the church where I was serving it showed. He did a number of street interviews, and he asked one woman, What are you in awe of? And she responded, Nothing. Not one thing. You know, the heavens might have been declaring the glory of God, but it's as if she was saying, I wonder what's on TV tonight. So do we have freedom? Well, yeah, we do, but not unqualified or unlimited freedom. For instance, you might freely choose today to fly to Venus or never to get sick again or to understand every mystery in the universe, but you are not given the freedom to do that. Just so we understand this, there are hundreds of free moral choices you make every day. That's how the potter made the clay. But your freedom is not unlimited. You don't have the freedom to live righteously. Indeed, you are bound in sin. That's basic to the book of Romans. Romans also points out that we're born in sin. And so by nature, we find God an unwelcome intrusion in our lives. We resist him. We rebel against him. We cast his ways behind us. And we refuse to give him thanks And that has put a bent into our souls that has led us in the wrong direction. And against this background of of lost humanity that has freely chosen to deliberately ignore the creator. Against the background of our hundreds and thousands and millions of free will choices. All of them done with profound disregard of the God who speaks and who pleads with us and reasons and urges us. Against that background comes the question of verse 19. It was really a sarcastic question for who resists God's will. All of Romans has taught us that resisting his will is the one free choice that we have all engaged in. No, no. The real question is, are we accountable for our actions? And the answer is, yes, we are. But Paul demands that we beware of how we question God. Now, if you were to ask questions because you want to understand, well, that's a good question. But one could also ask the question simply because one does not want to acknowledge the right of God in his infinite power and wisdom to rule his world and our lives. There are those who want to argue that human beings have a free choice to choose for or against God, but who would argue that God does not have the right to choose a people for his own possession. And this is the nature of cheeky humanity that stands there shaking its fist at God, questioning the right of the potter over the clay, demanding that we be given rights over God, questioning whether God is moral, and questioning with our finite knowledge whether God is really wise. What's really behind those kind of questions is the arrogance of saying, I can choose God anytime I want to, but God better not. And Paul says, in in disgust of our profound arrogance and stupidity, who are you to question God? Indeed, it is the arrogance of believing that we can question God, but that he cannot question us that leads to this response. Think about that.
0: We'll hear more from Dr. Newfeld in just a moment. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? Questions like these are alive in the minds of many young adult Christians in our culture. Well, Dr. John Newfeld says, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they are asking about gender identity. We're responding to that need by hosting Indoubt's very first In Doubt Live event, all about sexual identity. Indoubt Live will consist of a time of worship and speakers like Dr. John Newfeld of Back to the Bible and leader of Ethos, Pastor Dave Johnson and others, and a QA. Indoubt Live Sexual Identity is happening on Thursday, October 27th at 6 30 p.m. at the Clova Theater in Surrey. There's no cost to this important event, so head to live.indoubt.com ca to find out more
1: we have seen that god's freedom and rights transcend our own he's the potter or the clay and the potter has rights over the clay think about it this way it's god's world this isn't your universe it's god's universe this isn't even your life it's a gracious gift given you by your Creator. And as creator, God will exercise his rights over you and me and your neighbor and your spouse and kids and parents and co-workers and your country. God has the right to make of you as he sees fit. Now, the good news is that God is just, that he's loving, that he's gracious. As ruler of this world, he's a good ruler, a wise ruler, a forward-looking ruler, and a ruler that is concerned with his creation. But still, Romans 9.21 has said, Has the potter no rights over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And to be truthful, our only problem is that the potter would make some vessels for dishonorable use. Kind of like an ancient potter making a vase for an artistic expression to beautify a home and then making another vessel for a night pot. And should God do that? Now, before I comment, let me quote from Martin Luther. In his tract The Bondage of the Will, he says, Mere human reason can never comprehend how God is good and merciful, and therefore you make to yourself a God of your own fancy, who hardens nobody, condemns nobody, pities everybody. You cannot comprehend how a just God can condemn those who are born in sin. And then Luther adds, Having been born in sin, they sin by nature, and yet God condemns them. And here's our problem. We demand to understand God fully. But when we have a God we fully understand, let me assure you that this is simply a projection of ourselves and our understanding, and it's in fact an idol. Think of the absurdity of a piece of clay that thinks it can understand the mind of the potter and even criticize the potter. To quote from Luther again, God is incomprehensible throughout, and therefore his justice as well as his other attributes are incomprehensible. Amen, Brother Martin. But now having established the rights of the blameless potter, Paul now takes the matter one step further, and now I'm reading Romans 9:22 22-24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power— has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory from vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, Paul turns back to Pharaoh. The words, what if, are grammatically designed to say, can you stretch your mind to consider something about God? Imagine God, who wishes in this world to make his power, his justice, and his wrath known. He wants to show the kind of God that he is. How does he accomplish this? In the case of Pharaoh, he had two options. The first option was simple. He could simply judge Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would be destroyed in an instant. But God has already determined in advance as the potter that he wants to make his power known. After all, that's why he created the world to externalize or showcase his glory. And so God goes slowly. He lets Pharaoh grow in power and cruelty. And then along comes Moses, and then along comes a plague, and the water of the Nile turns to blood. But God allows the magicians to be able to perform the same thing. And Pharaoh says, this God is not that strong. And so he gets used to the fact that God can make his life uncomfortable. And because he survives, Pharaoh feels stronger. I mean, after all, we've all heard the expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And then comes the second plague. Frogs cover the earth. But the magicians can do that one too. And then comes the third, gnats. But by now the magicians can't do these things anymore, but Pharaoh is convinced he can survive. After all, has he not survived in the past? What Pharaoh doesn't know is that this was designed to harden his heart. Now a fourth plague flies, and then a fifth. The livestock of Egypt die, and now a sixth. Boils appear on man and beast, and it becomes almost unlivable in Egypt, and God hardens up Pharaoh so he won't listen. And then comes the seventh. Great hailstones mingled with fire come down and destroy the entire Egyptian harvest, and there is going to be a famine now. And then God speaks, and it's recorded in Exodus 9, 15 and 16. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, God worked slowly so that the attention of all Israel and all Egypt and by now the rest of the nations under Egyptian dominion might pay attention. And then the world paid attention. Three more plagues. Locusts devoured what was left. Darkness fell on the whole land. And then the angel of death came and killed every firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh amenhotep's firstborn son. And then as Israel came out, God hardened Pharaohs one more time. And in this moment of supreme madness, as he went after Israel with the finest officers and the might of his military, and God drowned them in the sea so that after 1445 B.C., the seemingly unstoppable Pharaoh Amenhotep II was unable to carry out any more military invasions as he had done before and he turned inward to rebuild his nation. He was utterly humiliated, and that's why God created Pharaoh ammon II. By now, the earth of that time was aware that the Creator was present to his creation. And what fool was there, no matter how powerful, who should not but fear him? I'm so glad God hardened Pharaoh. I'm so glad that through this event, more people came to hear about the God who reigns and more people had a chance to repent and believe. What is the answer to the question of why the wicked prosper? Well, it would appear that God allows rebels to grow in might and prominence so that when he visits them with judgment, the whole world might know that he's there. It may utterly surprise you to know that God uses the wicked to showcase his power. The potter has the right over the clay. He has a right to rule this world in such a way that would showcase his might. And that's not only true of Pharaoh. Do you know that it's true of every one of us? Think of this. Every single person, everyone created, will glorify God. I mean, some will do it with great thankfulness. They'll do it on their knees in humility, saying, Oh, God, have your way in my life but some will do it in rebellion. And God will use their very rebellion in the end of time to showcase his perfect justice and his unstoppable strength. And with that comes a sobering charge. If you today are standing against God and you're rebelling against him or ignoring him or going your own way, please don't overestimate your standing today. It's pure fallacy to think that we can damage God. We cannot. God has the right to use your callous disregard for him as the right of a potter over the clay, to use you to highlight his wrath and to make known his power. The potter has the right. That's why we need to repent instantly and begin to fear God. Yes, God uses rebellion to showcase his power. Indeed, this is a part of his mysterious greatness. But also God uses the rebellion of the wicked to strengthen his people. You see, from Israel's vantage point, what happened to Pharaoh became the centerpiece of their faith. Whether they were in war against an overwhelming enemy or evildoers seemed to be overrunning their land, they remembered from the Exodus that you can count on God. Even wickedness plays into his hand. You can trust God. He will vindicate his cause. He will protect his people in the end. We may suffer now. We may even be defeated now. We may be a laughingstock to the world now, but wait for the Lord. He will redeem his people. When God rules, evil people will even strengthen his elect. But there's one more matter that just can't be ignored right now. The Exodus becomes in the New Testament the framework for the cross of Jesus. Jesus himself is portrayed as our Passover lamb, the one who must be slain, and his blood applied to our lives so that the destroyer that struck down Pharaoh might pass over us. Were it not for God in his mercy, using his right in the cross as the potter over the clay, we would have no portrait that leads us to our salvation. God was thinking ahead, if I can put it that way. When he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he did it so that a greater company
0: of the elect could make their way before his throne. John, I know I asked you off air how you spell this. I'm not even sure you're gonna pronounce it right, but Pharaoh Amenhophis II, now you've got an interesting personal story about him.
1: Yeah, years ago, my wife and I were in the Valley of the Kings, which uh, you can visit if you go to visit uh, Egypt. It was a it was an interesting experience for us because everyone went to see the you know the tomb of King Tut and all of the other major ones, and uh, I saw the name Amenhophis there, and I knew that was the one. And I just stood out the doorway of that tomb, and I just gave thanks to God with my wife, and thanked the Lord because. This was the man that God had demonstrated his power against. I know from his perspective it was a horrible thing, but for those who are redeemed, I thought about what God did to that man, and that thing was to bring the gospel to me. And sometimes the ways of God are indeed strange, Ben. That's what I remember.
0: Amen. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I want to mention a very special ministry offer today. After Dr. Neufeld shared his one-week series on the Psalms, Finding Forgiveness, we felt the messages were so important and the need to understand forgiveness so essential that we wanted to provide our listeners with a gift with added purpose. First, let me quote Dr. Neufeld from this series when he said, I want to speak directly to you in a way that might make you uncomfortable. But I also want to say that if you allow yourself to experience the pain of what I have to say this week, I believe that I can offer you hope, healing, restoration, and a renewed passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be in a place where new hope, healing, and restoration is exactly what you need. Or you may know someone who needs to understand the power of forgiveness and a renewed relationship with Jesus. If that's you. We want to offer you the Finding Forgiveness series free on CD. But we also, upon your request, want to send you a second copy to give to someone you might know who needs to know that forgiveness and a renewal that is possible through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take the opportunity today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or request one or two copies of Finding Forgiveness by emailing us at info at